Tonight we're going to be talking about heresy, hedonism, and hatred, the rise of the Sadducees. Sadducees, of course, are a sect of Jews that rise to prominence in the Jewish communities during the times of the Hasmoneans. And it's, I think, one of the darkest chapters of our history. In my assessment, it's the primary cause of the destruction of the Temple and the slaughter of almost potentially millions of people. It nearly caused Torah to be forgotten, and I believe that its shameful legacy exists and lives on until this very day. So our story starts with the reign of the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans, of course, we spoke about during the episode on Hanukkah. They defeated the Syrian Greeks, but the Syrian Greeks were allied with the Jewish sympathizers, the Jewish Hellenists. So there's a huge cadre of Jewish Hellenists that are... Uh, that are a part of the community that believes things that are heretical to the masses of the Jewish community. They ally with the Greeks. The Hasmoneans come. They restore the order in the Jewish community. They defeat the Greeks. They squelch the Hellenism. And they reestablish sovereignty and hegemony over the land. What happened to those Hellenists? Did they all die out? Did they just disappear? What actually happened to them is they had to go underground. Whatever they believed, their uh, form, their brand of Judaism, i.e. Judaism in name only, but really identifying with the Greeks and trying to assimilate in every way they can, that was still present in the underground. And what they did very cleverly, one of the great remarketing, uh, rebranding marketing plans of all time, is they rebranded themselves, not as Hellenists, this time as Sadducees. And I think tonight, one of the goals of tonight is to look at the story, but also to dispel some common misconceptions that we have with regards to the Sadducees. Typically, if you read about the Sadducees, uh, you find out a lot about their ideological stances. Whereas the Pharisees, the Purushim, as they're they're known in Hebrew, these were the people that stayed true to Torah, to Oral Torah, to Rabbinic Torah, whatever brand, however you want to portray, but basically the traditional masses of the Jewish people, those are the Pharisees, come alone, the Sadducees, and they say, no, we believe in Torah, only the written Torah, not the Oral Torah. That's how they are presented in uh, very often by the history writers. The truth is, these are nothing more than Hellenists, people that want to abandon Torah and abandon Jewish identity, but it's recrafted and rebranded for uh, emergence during the time of the Hasmoneans. The only difference, the only real difference between the Sadducees and the Hellenists of you know, the preceding hundred years, both of them cast off their back the yoke of Torah. The difference is really political. The political landscape during the time of the Hasmoneans, these were, this was the family and the empire that had unseated the Greeks. It was part of their DNA to say, we're the ones who came to oppose the Hellenists. Therefore, it is no longer politically viable for people to brand themselves as Hellenists. What they decided to do was to take on a new name and, uh, and try to use that as, uh, as, as grounds to catapult uh, to, once again, prominence in the Jewish community. And that's the name of the Sadducees. Now, what's the story of, of Sadducees and the names, uh, the Tzidokim as they're known in Hebrew, what is their backstory? And I think when you read their backstory, you find out a, a little bit about what really are the underpinnings of this movement. So Shimon Atzadik, Shimon Atzadik was a high priest and he was the last of the men, the men of the great assembly. 
he was the leader of the Jewish people when they were still united. He had a student by the name of Antignus. And Antignus was one of, uh, he was w- one of the, what's known as the Zugot, a time period where the Jewish people had two recognized leaders. One of them was known as the Nasi, the prince, the other one known as the Avbeitin, and together they were the leaders of the nation. Antignus was one of them, and he had a very famous lesson. In fact, this lesson is enshrined in the Pirkei Avos, Chapters of the Fathers, the lesson of Antignus Ish Soko. And he taught as follows, Do not be like slaves that serve the master with intention of receiving reward. Rather, be like slaves, like servants who worship the master without intention of receiving reward. That was his lesson. And it really goes to a core idea of Jewish life, and that is we want to worship God, we want to serve God, not because we'll get some sort of kickback, but we're dedicated to truth. And truth is that we should worship God. We're not thinking about Olam Abba, Mashiach, Chesamesim. We're not thinking about the fact that we're going to benefit. We want to do what's right because it's right. And that's the idea known broadly in Jewish literature as Lishma, doing things without any ulterior intentions and motivations. That's really what he's teaching. Now he had two students, one of them named Tzadok and one of them named Baitus, and they taught to their students and their students taught to their students. So obviously the idea is getting passed on from generations of students to the other one. And we could sense how the message is going to get a little bit garbled. What he taught is a central core idea of Judaism, and that is that we have to do things with a proper intention. There's improper intention. You could do a mitzvah, but if you do a mitzvah and say, I'm only doing this mitzvah because I want people to think I'm really a special guy. My, you know, my wife will like me, and the community will like me, they'll ask me to see in the front, they'll ask me to give a lecture. That It's still a mitzvah, it's better than doing a sin, but that's not with pure intention. He's teaching us, do mitzvahs with pure intention because you're a servant who's worshiping your master. You don't want to get any reward. That's what he actually taught. But as it filtered through the generations, they came up with this novel idea to use this as a basis for heresy. And what they suggested is that how is it possible that we could worship God our entire lives and not think about reward? The only way that that's really possible is maybe... There really is no reward. There's no afterlife. There's no reward and punishment. There's no consequences at all for what you're doing. And that's why the rabbis are telling us, don't think about reward because there really isn't. That was the nefarious and malicious beginnings where they misinterpreted the teaching of the rabbis and they linked it to Tzadok, who was the student of Antidnos, and they kind of took this idea, they corrupted it, and then they used it as a baseline for their heresy to start off with the notion that there's no reward and punishment, thus there's no consequences for our behavior. Once there's no consequences, everything is allowed, and that leads to what their real religion was, and that was hedonism. So the Sadducees are erroneously portrayed, or uh, incorrectly portrayed, as being ones who were ideologically motivated, that they had a problem with the rabbis, the rabbis were asserting their will, the rabbis were making too many edicts, the Sanhedrin, its power had become corrupted, and they came in and say, no, let's just follow the written Torah and not the oral Torah. The truth is, the core roots of it was a decision to try to cast off all responsibility of Torah 
to say that there is no meaning behind Torah because there is no consequences. If there's no consequences, we could do whatever we want. That is really what got them started. And whatever else they did with regards to ideology, that was really to fit their underlying goal. They would just use ideology when it suited them and discard it when it wasn't helping their their uh, underlying principle, desire, and objective. So that's the the basis. It's essentially people who are Hellenists, the Hellenists who are not interested in Judaism, who want to be like the non-Jews, be them the Greeks, be them the Romans, it doesn't really matter. They're enamored by the other cultures. And now they're essentially prowling for an excuse, for a way to substantiate what they really want. They found Sadok. They say, we're the Tzadokim. We're the ones who believe that uh, there is no consequences. And they became uh, an official group. It's just the Hellenists rebranded. Now, this rejuvenated sect is, of course, at odds with the majority of the Jews. The majority of Jews get renamed. Uh, and this is somewhat of a revisionist history, as if there were two groups that kind of separated uh, at the same time. The truth is, it's only the Sadducees who splintered off from the main group. But once you split up from the main group, in order to get even footing, you have to rename the main group. Thus, they renamed the main group as the Purushim. Purushim are those that are abstaining. And they're implying that, well, we're innovating. We have these new ideas. And these... These are the old guard, the orthodoxy, if you will, the people that are refusing to hear any of our innovation. Therefore, we're going to call them the Prushim, those who are abstaining from the novelty that we are developing here. And thus, history looks at them as if there were two groups, but the truth is the Prushim, the Pharisees, they're the exact same group that always was. They're the ones who believed in the traditional Torah Judaism. But, if you have to, if you invent an offshoot and you brand it, it's very desirous, it's very advantageous for you to say, we're not the rebels, we're on equal footing with everyone else. Thus, how do you do that? You rename everyone else. In modern times, we have reform. So we're not talking about the reform movement specifically today, but with the rise of reform, you see the rise of a brand new term called orthodox. There's no one before reform needed to be labeled orthodox, just like there was no one before the Sadducees that needed to be labeled the Pharisees. It's only once you develop your quote-unquote innovation, then, well, what are the people that don't accept your innovation? Well, they're orthodox, they're Pharisees, they're the ones who are not accepting our new development. So there's conflict. You have the masses of the people uh, primarily ones, we, we call them the Pharisees, the ones who are dedicated to Torah. They have the rabbis, the great sages of the time, who are their leaders. And then you have the wannabe Hellenists, the Sadducees. Uh, they, this was primarily the more aristocratic uh, sect, the one that had gotten involved in the Greek ideology that morphed into the Roman ideology, which were very similar, kind of sister uh, ideas, especially with relation to Judaism. And they're a minor sect, especially in raw numbers, but even in influence. Now, at the time, we have the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans, they became, of course, they were Matthias and his five sons and Judah Maccabee, and they kicked the Greeks out and they established the Hasmonean dynasty. They're in control of Israel, and they're very pious and very dedicated. And they have Shimon, who's the first king. Now, 
Technically, he didn't name himself king because he was a Kohen. We know, we read in this week's Parsha, that to be a king, you have to be from the family of Judah. So he said, I'll be, I'll be a prince, right? He made a very clear division between king, he's not quite a king, but he's the leader because he's the last remaining brother of the Maccabees. His son, he doesn't care for those details, and he names himself king, and then you have a successive line of illegitimate kings because they're not from the family of Judah, and they're going to veer progressively towards Sadduceeism. And therefore, at the end, it's, you know, it's one of the tragic stories in Jewish history is the downfall of the Hasmoneans, whereas they stood up to fight Hellenism, and eventually they themselves became absorbed into Hellenism's heirs in the form of the Sadducees. Now, the story that happened where you know, everyone's trying to fight for position. Uh, to who's going to influence the Yochanan? The Yochanan, who was the high priest, the, the, the high priest and the king. And the Sadducees found an opportunity to turn him. And once they're able to turn him, they had political power to really go ahead with their major plans. And now it's important to note, just for the sake of clarity, this is a little inside baseball here. It's a, a little bit of a disagreement in the text. Was this Yohanan, who was the son of Shimon, or was it Alexander Yane, who was the grandson of Shimon, the son of Yohanan? Yohanan Hierarchinus, known in, uh, known in the secular world as John Hierarchinus. Either way, it doesn't really matter. We're going to assume that it was one or the other. It doesn't really matter, because there's two different uh, versions of the text in the Talmud as well. And there's evidence back and forth, but that's advanced stuff. It's not really so interesting for us. So the Talmud says like this, it happened that the king Yanai went to, to the war and he conquered 60 cities. And when he returned, he rejoiced exceedingly and he invited all the sages of Israel. They made a huge party. And they said at the party, and this is somewhat emblematic of people that make it really big in life, they say, well, let's try to remember some of the sufferings of yesteryear. And he said to the, to the sages, our forefathers ate cress, a very lowly, like kind of grass-like vegetable, uh, because when they were building the temple, they didn't have it, they're very poor. The Hasmoneans had tremendous wealth. And they said, you know what, let's do, let's have a memory for our forefathers. Let's also eat cress. So they take the tables of gold and they put this lowly vegetable and they start eating together. And everyone's there celebrating uh, this wonderful victory of Alexander Yanai. So you have the sages on one side, but you also have the other group in the form of some of the Sadducees, also there at the party, everyone celebrating together. So there's one person who was a, in, in Talmud called a letz, which means he's a good for nothing. He's a man of evil heart, a worthless person. And he said to the king, Yanai, Alexander Yanai, or maybe Yochanan Herkinus, doesn't matter. Uh, the Pharisees, he points across the table, those people are against you. Why? Because they, they, you're the king, but they won't let you be the high priest, even though you're from the family of the Kohen. They won't nominate you as a high priest. Why don't you go ahead and put on the, uh, the vestments of the high priest, and you should have both. You should be the most honored one. You should be the spiritual leader. You should be the political leader. They don't want you to have it. They pointed across the table. Now, there was actually a technical problem because the king's mother or grandmother, depends which version of the story you accept, was actually taken captive by the Nam Jews. Halacha is, for a Kohen 
to uh, there's certain women he cannot marry. If he does marry those certain women, then his ch- his children are kohanes, but they're called a chalal. They're not eligible to do service in the temple. The rabbis decreed that if a woman was taken captive by non-Jews, so we don't know if she was raped or not. We don't know what happened. It's possible that she was raped. If she was raped, then her children, she would not be allowed to marry a Kohen, and if she would marry to a Kohen, her children would not be eligible to be Kohens in the temple. Therefore, they said, you know what? If a woman was taken captive, even if we don't know if she was raped or not, she shouldn't marry a Kohen. So these Hasmoneans didn't care. They married her anyhow, and now their son or grandson is the king. And thus the rabbis are going to say that he's not eligible to be the Kohen Gadol, to be the high priest. Whereas the, the Sadducees, they don't care about anything, any of this stuff. All they care about is to wedge uh, a, a schism between the king, the power, and the rabbis, and then they could assume all the power for themselves. So they kind of set him up here. They, they, they kind of provoked this clash. So he asked the rabbis, well, can I become high priest? And they say, no. So he said, okay, all you guys are fired. So now this person, this worthless, you know, good for nothing, is like, well, what do you mean? If the rabbis insulted an average Joe, he could fire them. But these rabbis insulted the king. They should all be executed. So Alexander says, well, that's a good idea. And he starts executing and assassinating all the rabbis. And there's a shift here where he had two voices, so to speak, in his court. He had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And now he goes on a campaign against the Pharisees, against the rabbis. And he and the Sadducees assume tremendous power throughout the land. There's only two rabbis remaining. One of them is Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachah. He escaped to Egypt, to Alexandria. And the other sage left was Shimon ben Shetach, who was the king's brother-in-law. And therefore, because he was the brother-in-law, he allowed him to stay. He was hidden in Jerusalem by his sister, and he eventually was, uh, he stayed there. So you see a tremendous just shift what's happening to the Jewish people, what the Sadducees are doing here. And it's devastation. So what do you have in Jerusalem? All the rabbis are dead. And now you have the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is in the temple. They have the temple. This is the Hasmonean kings. Like, this is royalty of the Jewish people. They killed all the rabbis. And what do you have? In the temple, you have the Sanhedrin. Who's sitting on the Sanhedrin? A bunch of Sadducees. They're all ignorant. So you have Shimon ben Shetach on one hand, and his only other colleague is hiding away in, in Alexandria in Egypt. And he's sitting with a bunch of total ignoramuses, people that care about money. That's their religion. They're the hedonists who use the, the, the Sidotian, so to speak, fallacy to go awry. And now what happens? Well, what happened to the glory and the grandeur of the Jewish people? So what he actually did was something very clever. He convinced the king to allow Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachet to come back from Egypt. And by the way, parenthetically, on that journey back from Egypt... He was with his student Yeshu, and that's the story of the Talmud on the way back from Egypt. That's a, a side note. And he used very clever tactics to pry the power of the Sanhedrin away from the Sadducees. When anyone came to the Sanhedrin, so it's, it's, Rabbi, it's Rabbi Shimon Shetach, who was a great Torah scholar, along with his partner, Rabbi Shimon Prachia, 
and a whole band of total ignoramuses, the Sadducees, who really didn't, weren't really even interested in Torah. They just wanted the power. And this was just all a ruse. So any matter of Torah that came before them, uh, the Talmud tells us that Shimon Machetach says, whoever is able to bring a proof from Torah, let them speak. If not, then they're unfit from seat, sitting in this court. And subtly, he managed to get all the Sadducees to admit their ignorance. And really, frankly, their lack of interest in these matters, they were discouraged from participating in the Sanhedrin. And eventually, every Sadducee that retired, quote-unquote, from the Sanhedrin, was replaced with a Torah scholar. But this is really a time, again, like we've seen many, many times throughout our discussions of Jewish history, where Torah was under tremendous assault and really almost destroyed. Yet a few rabbis here and there uh, left. But this also demonstrates that the Sadducees themselves did not have a robust bench of Torah scholars because they didn't really have the interest or the infrastructure where they taught Torah. It wasn't like they said, we'll be the experts in written Torah. No, they weren't the experts in not this and not that. And they weren't interested in, in Torah scholarship at all. Today, we are presented with a false narrative that these Sadducees were very pious and it was a new group that rose out of disappointment. Uh, they were conscientious uh, opposers to the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the rabbis, their power had gone too far. So they wanted to kind of push the yoke of the rabbis off the populace. That is a narrative that we get today. In fact, Josephus, who happens to be a Sadducee himself and always defending, he himself writes that they weren't interested and they weren't adept at Torah scholarship at all. Uh, moreover, this is really, this is really uh, like a critical insight. Why did they choose? If, if really what, they, what their ultimate goal was to abandon Torah entirely, uh, and the basis for that was something to do with afterlife. They, 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 their, their underpinning, their ideological underpinnings was that life has no consequences, i.e. license for hedonism. So why did they deliberately attack the, the oral Torah and then accept the written Torah? Think about it. What they should have said is, well, either abandon none of it, or it's not really where their point of contention really lied. So, uh, moreover, we know from the stories is that they weren't really opposed to rabbinic Torah because uh, they there are many instances where they didn't forbid observance of Torah law. For example, on the holiday of Sukkot, everyone shakes an esrog. Well, how do we know that it's an esrog? The verse just says a beautiful fruit. So that's all oral Torah. It's all oral Torah to know that it's a, it's a, it's an esrog. And we know we have document, documentation from all sources that during the rise of the Sadducees, they still allowed the people to use the esrog as the fruit of choice on the holiday of, of Sukkot. So it wasn't like they said all oral Torah is bad. Instead, what they actually did was a little, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of malicious uh, to understand that. Remember, the chief problem or the chief point of tension between these two was the fact that the Sadducees had spoiled or corrupted the mind of the king by 
demonstrating his ineligibility to become a Kohen. That was a rabbinic law. Because according to Torah law, unless a woman is actually raped, and we have evidence to that, her child would not be disqualified from being a Kohen. The rabbis were the ones who said, just to add a certain measure of, of uh, protection, to say that even if a woman was just taken captive, she would, uh, her descendants would become ineligible. So what he really despised was this law and this law alone. Thus, the rest of the Torah, uh, the rabbinic Torah, the oral Torah, he was really fine with it. The fact that they used Esrot, he didn't make a big deal about that. And he also knew that he was facing resistance because the masses of the people, they were really Pharisees. But what he really wanted was to abolish this law, this particular rabbinic law that called into question the legitimacy of his becoming Kohen Gadol. But he knew that if he would abolish this particular law, then everyone would realize the expediency of his motives. Everyone would say, oh, you're just trying to cover up for your own ineligibility to become Kohen. So instead, what he did was he abolished all the rabbinic decrees and thus to avoid the appearance of any self-interest and any self-motivation for that. And thus he kind of hid this one law that he was disappointed with among the entire swath of rabbinic law and thus he could say, well, now I am eligible. And indeed, the narrative of the Sadducees being this pious group that was sticking up for the Torah really is illogical with their lack of fear of repercussions. They were the students of Tzadok. They didn't believe, they denied the existence of the world to come and thus of any reward and punishment after this life. They know consequences to deter them from sin. Those kinds of people, people that do not live with any fear of what can happen to them as a result of their behavior, especially once they have political uh, uh, license to do whatever they want, they're not behaving in a pious way at all. And in fact, during this time in history, we see some of the saddest things that could ever happen to any community, and certainly the Jewish community, where there's actually real bloodshed amongst the various groups of the Jewish people. Because, and obviously that's not the behavior of a pious group uh, to say that we'll kill our opponents because we don't like what they say and they hold too much power amongst the people. Now, once in power, this is kind of sad, uh, but the Sadducees really interfered with many religious aspects of the temple and Jewish life. Uh, for example, so they were very selfish and they were very greedy and uh, they would, on other occasions, incite the masses and disrupt Jewish life and Jewish practice. But one particularly heinous event was their attempted pilfering of the shekel coffers. Now, the shekel was already established in the Torah. Moshe collects money from all the people. Everyone gives a donation to the coffers of, of, the, uh, of the temple, and that's used to buy communal sacrifices. And the idea behind it is that every Jew should have a portion in the ongoing runnings of the temple. Everyone donates, no matter, no matter where you are, even Jews that were on the other sides of the world, they would have a military contingencies going, uh, military uh, escorts 
where they would go from town to town throughout the diaspora. Remember, a lot of Jews are living in Babylon. Jews are living in Alexandria in, in, in Egypt. Jews are living in Turkey in, in Asia Minor. Jews are living really everywhere in the known world. And to travel is, is, a, is a big deal. So every year they would send soldiers to go from town to town to, to do the sacred work of collecting the shekel from each and every Jew, bring it to the temple, and there was a huge amount of money, and that was used for the sacrifices. So the Sadducees say, well, there's a huge pile of money, how, how can we possibly access that? That's the way a Sadducee would think. And what they did was, they said, oh, we have, we have a new innovation. Instead of taking public money for the daily sacrifices, we're going to institute that it's going to be donated by individuals. Give individuals the opportunity to donate to the temple. But what that means is essentially all that other money, the public money, is all there for whatever else you want to use it for. If you want to use it for your army or to fill plug in your budget hole, whatever it is, you have now that huge stockpile of cash at your disposal. Now, looking back, you could say, wow, what a nice innovation for the Sadducees to say, let people have the opportunity to donate their own, my my own sacrifice. The truth is, really, this was not an ideologically motivated idea. It was just plain old greed. They wanted to steal money from the coffers of the temple. And, And this is, I think, particularly... It's one of those victimless crimes because you're not stealing from an individual, you're stealing from the group. But what are you doing? You're pilfering the money of the temple. Like That's unheard of to do such a thing. Uh, and of course, the vast majority of the Jews were revo- revolted by this notion. And they started a mass protest against this, what they considered to be tremendous sacrilege against Jewish life. They're coming into the temple and stealing the money. Jews are coming into the temple and stealing. That's what that's what Romans and Greeks do. That's not what we do. And indeed, they, they had riots in the streets. And they actually had an eight days of disputation. They got together and they would debate. And finally, the Sadducees abandoned their proposals because they were legitimately feared of a national uprising in uh, outrage and outcry. Uh, another example of when they would sabotage Jewish process, Jewish life. Uh, we know and during the temple, and indeed for hundreds of years after the temple is already destroyed, once the Sanhedrin is still around, the halacha is, is that Jewish calendar, the Jewish life is, is regulated by the calendar, and the calendar is regulated by the new month. A new month is 29 and a half days. So the fact that it's not... A, not 29 or 30 days, that's 29 and a half days, that means that some months we skew lower, so it's a 29-day month, and thus the 30th is the 30th day of the preceding month is the first day of the upcoming month. But some months, they're 30-day months, and thus the 31st day, that's the new, the Rosh Chodesh, and uh, the previous month is what's called uh, Chodesh Mu'uberet, it's a pregnant year, I, it's a little bit... Uh, uh, you know, more tumescent because it has an extra day. Uh, that's established already by Moshe. Now, for us, it's like, well, okay, who cares which day is Rosh Chodesh? It doesn't really impact our lives. But 
The truth is that it does, because when is Rosh Hashanah, when is Yom Kippur, when is Sukkot, and when, is, it, is it this day or is it that day? Is it the 15th day or is it the 16th day, or, right? That, that's something that we don't know unless we follow this really regimented process of deciding when the new month is, and that had to be done only in the Sanhedrin. That's the rule. It had to be done only in the Sanhedrin. Uh, there's one story where Rabbi Akiva, during the Hadrianic persecutions, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to be in session. He had to escape to Babylon out of the uh, tentacles of the evil Romans, and he had to convene a Sanhedrin there just to ensure that the Jewish community could continue on for another month and, uh, and establish the new month. But that was, of course, that's anyway in circumstances. Now, how do you, how do you determine, how does the Sanhedrin determine, how does the Sanhedrin determine when is a new month, they have witnesses. And the witnesses come forward. And the witnesses say, well, we saw the month, and we saw the moon, and we saw it in this shape and that shape. Where was it leaning? What did it look like? A very complicated process of determining from the testimony of the witnesses whether or not we can establish a new month or not. So what the Sadducees say, you know what? Let's disrupt the whole process by sending a bunch of false witnesses. So they just had a deluge of false witnesses coming to them. We saw this, we saw that, making up stories. What they saw, the rabbis have a, a thousand people waiting in line, all coming to testify. We don't know who's real, who's fake. what they do? And the rabbis had to change the rules of establishing a new month as a result of, 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 of this trick that they pulled, that the Sadducees pulled. And they, would, they, they announced from now on, unless the witnesses are people whose reputation is absolutely sterling, and people that we actually know, the court has to know that these people are A-OK, we're not accepting their testimony. And thus, innocent people, people that, you know, that legitimately saw the new moon and wanted to go to Jerusalem and testify, they're no longer eligible. Because maybe you're a spy, maybe you're sent in uh, as a confederate of the Sadducees to disrupt the temple servicing processes. But this really shows what their motivation was. It wasn't that they were just, oh, we're just trying to do what's right. We're pious people and the rabbis messed it up. No, they're deliberately trying to disrupt Jewish life as much as they can because they don't like it. They want to be like the non-Jews. Yom Kippur process. So there are certain parts of the Yom Kippur process that are, that are deduced from, from rabbinic law. They're not explicit in the text. And during the era of the Sadducees, you have all these, who, who, you know, who became the high priest? So we see that the family of the Hasmoneans, they were high priests, uh, but they were in control of the, of the political leadership. And they would sometimes say, okay, we need to raise some funds for some sort of military operation. We're going to hold a, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to sell it at an auction. And all the coins say, ah, I'd love to have the experience of being the high priest and doing the service on Yom Kippur. I'm going to come in and put in a bid. And thus, they would just sell it to the highest bidder. And thus, you'd have high priests that were ignorant of law, that were Sadducees, that would come in and do whatever they want in the, in the Holy of Holies. Could you imagine such, a, such an atrocity? And indeed, during this time, there, during the Second Temple era, there's over 300 high priests for the duration of the 400 and some odd years of the temple's existence. Whereas 
the first temple, even though it was only 10 years uh, discrepancy in length of temple, there were only 18 high priests. Because the high priest became a commodity that people would sell. It's like, it's like one of those experiences today. People don't want to just go on vacation. They want to jump off an airplane, right? People, those days, what was the greatest experience you could buy? I want to buy my, you know, my husband. He's, you know, he's having his 50th birthday. What should I get him? Well, why don't you buy a, just a, a, a pass to become the high priest for a week and a half? What a great idea. And that's what happened. But it's a terrible defilement of, of the sacred. And indeed, what would happen is that the, the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur. If they would tamper with the process of uh, the correct process, they would immediately die. And during the Second Temple era, they had to tie a chain to the leg of the high priest because non-Kohen girls are not allowed even to walk in to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Holy of Holies. Only the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur would go in there. So the problem is you'd have a dead high priest there. He's just there in the Holy of Holies and he's dead because God zapped him for his terrible sacrilege. And therefore, they would attach a little string to his leg and pull, drag him out. He's dead. He's, they drag him out out of the Holy of Holies and bury him. That's what would happen. Just really horrible. And the Gemara, the Gemara tells us, I guess if you want to get rid of your husband, that's probably a good way to do it. Hun, huh? <laughs> why don't you just go be a high priest for the weekend? <laughs> Uh, the Mishnah tells us what would actually happen because not all high priests were like that. So uh, there were some high priests that were, you know, that they, they were pious and they, they were righteous and they wanted to do what was right. But they would come to the temple and it was the week before Yom Kippur and they would have a sit down with all the rabbis. Remember, the, the Sanhedrin is still controlled by the Pharisees, by the, the Tamilcham, the Torah scholars. And they would have a sit down with the high priest, and then make him swear that he does everything by the book, everything the way it is prescribed. And sometimes they'd be sitting there with a high priest who was legitimately righteous, and they're accusing him of being a secret Sadducee. And he would start crying, says the Mishnah. They would start, they would start crying, and they're really crying over the sorry state of the Jewish people, where you have the holiest office of the nation is... Is, was being, was commandeered by a bunch of thugs. And you have to start just questioning even your friends, even people that are righteous. Maybe they're a secret Sadducee and they're coming just to have a good time or to disrupt uh, the process. There's one, another great story, a very famous story that really also illustrates the kind of challenges that uh, happened once you have high priests that are Sadducees. This indeed was Alexander Yanai himself, after he ordained himself as the high priest, he would arrive to the temple during the holiday of Sukkot. Now there's this particular mitzvah during the holiday of Sukkot of Sukkot called the, uh, what's known in English as the water libations. They would take water and pour it on the altar. And there was a mitzvah. Problem is, it's only hinted in the Torah. It's not explicit in the Torah. So again, this is where the Sadducees say, well, we don't, we don't observe this. It's not, it's not literal. We have to read the literal text. The literal text doesn't say that. But everyone else, they say, no, this is what we're doing for thousands of years. Well, maybe hundreds of years. This is what we do on the holiday of Sukkot and do it. So 
Alexander Yana comes in and he's dressed up like the Kohen Gadol and he's surrounded by an army of mercenaries because he knew he was a, you know, he was a target. And he comes in and he takes the water, instead of pouring it onto the altar, he pours it on his feet. So he makes a mockery. So all the people, they start cursing him. How do they curse him? They say, you're the son of a captive woman. They're telling him, i.e., you're not eligible. You're a total farce. So he gets, you know, he gets enraged. And what do they start doing? They start doing, so they're kind of stirring the pot. And then some people start taking their esrogs and throwing at him. him. And before you know it, everyone's pelting him with esrogim. And he's there in the middle, surrounded by an army of heavily uh, armed mercenaries, and he was legitimately scared that they're going to kill him. They're, the mobs are going to pounce on them. So he tells his people, he tells his Gentile soldiers to start just slaughtering anyone who's next to them. And unfortunately, the unarmed worshippers in the temple are attacked by the heavily armed mercenaries. And on that very day, 6,000 Jews were heinously and brutally Slaughter, and this is not the only episode of bloodshed, like we've said, that existed as a result of the Sadducee uh, sect and their schism. Indeed, the Sadducees were a very powerful group amongst the people for uh, around 200 years. It was years marked by infighting, by sectarianism, of course, by heresy, by senseless hatred. They too spawned uh, not only the Sadducees, but all these other groups, they did the unthinkable and unconscionable of making divisions amongst the people. They caused strife and schism. Indeed, they ushered in an era of divisiveness. We know uh, during the hundred years on the run-up to the destruction of the temple, they uh, there were so many different groups. Of course, you have the Judeo-Christians, but you have the Essenes, you have the Sadducees, but the Sadducees were the first one to really do what was never done prior. Prior, you had individuals who had an aura of heresy. You had individuals that decided to abandon Judaism. You had a, a band of Hellenists. But here, the Sadducees became a dominant sect, even though they were always in the minority, but they had a lot of power. And we find a terrifying and frightening statement in the Midrash. When the Jews adopt heresy, right away, immediately, a direct result is that the nations of the world are happy, are delighted, and gather together to kill the Jews. And we see this again and again. The Jews say, we're going to abandon Torah, what they're actually doing is stripping away the national shield that guards the people. And thus, the non-Jews and the, the enemies of Israel, they want to kill us at all times. It's just that we have a supernatural barrier called Torah that protects us. Torah shields and protects the Jewish people. What happens? The Jews say, let's abandon Torah. And you know what's going to be? We're going to be embraced by all our neighbors. Because now we're no different than them. We're Hellenists. We're, we're, we're Sadducees. We're, we're not the ones who are sticking by these ideas of yesteryear, Torah, and all that. We're like you. And that's a pattern that unfortunately has repeated itself uh, again and again throughout history. 
And it's a good calculation to say, well, if we're more like the non-Jews, then we'll be embraced by them. But indeed, every single time that it has happened, the rosy fantasies of uh, the panacea of living in harmony with the non-Jews has been shattered. And unfortunately, uh, the, the vision of uh, the utopia of the Sadducees was brought to a, a crashing and tragic and very painful end by the Romans. But I think while the Sadducees themselves are gone, their ideology still exists, unfortunately, amongst some of the Jewish people. They imagine Let's abandon our religion in the hopes that we'll curry favor with the non-Jews with, and we'll end the hatred maybe even of, of, of Israel. Let's pander to our enemies in the hopes that we'll be saved from their wrath. But by doing that, they're unwittingly stripping away the only protection that we really have against us being slaughtered. You strip, that, you strip away that and what do you have? You have terrible, terrible themes that result. And indeed, every single point in history when a movement like the Sadducees begins, really bad things uh, end up as a result. It's not necessarily immediately, um, but I think there's a really powerful lesson for us. The Sadducees are, A, misrepresented in history. They're just a reformulization of the Hellenists. They had very nefarious methods and intentions, and they caused a lot of division and disagreement and strife amongst the people, and ultimately, they ushered in the destruction of the temple, the arrival of the, the arrival of the Romans, but also the terrible consequences of all that pain and suffering. Really, they have a bit part in it, and they have a lot to bear. And we should take the lesson to say, we're a nation, we're united, we have a Torah, we have our principles, and we're one nation. And if we try to say that will be like everyone else, well, there's something that's fixed. And the thing that's fixed is that we're going to be different than everyone else. The only question is, how are we going to be different? Are we going to be different because we're going to have Torah and no one else has Torah? That's the best way to be different. If we strip away the Torah and we say, we're the same with regards to our ideology, come along the non-Jews and say, no, 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 you're different, and here's your yellow star. Let's not make the mistake again, and let's not fall into the same traps that the Sadducees did, because it's not going to bring good tidings for the Jews and for our future.